Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted November 4th, 2016, we focus on a new WPJ fall issue analysis of suppression, discrimination, and civil unrest in Ethiopia's Oromo region going back more than a century, leading to renewed bloodshed and a national state of emergency just last month. The story is headlined, Ethiopia's Original Sin, the Oromo Tragedy. We'll also point out other top features in the new fall issue, cover theme, History's Ghosts. But first, some top news from Washington this week. The U.S. presidential campaign continued to teeter and tighten after the much-criticized disclosure by FBI Director James Comey that hundreds of thousands of emails apparently linked to Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton's private server as Secretary of State had turned up in an unrelated sexting investigation of disgraced former Congressman Anthony Weiner. He's the estranged husband of longtime Clinton top aide Huma Abedin, whose lawyer said she had no idea how they got on Weiner's laptop. A rushed computerized examination of the emails was launched by the Justice Department, but no official word was expected before Election Day on whether any of them contained classified material or signs of a cover-up or duplicated messages already known, which Comey previously declared not meriting Clinton's prosecution. Clinton supporters countered with ads painting GOP contender Donald Trump as too cavalier about the threat of nuclear proliferation and support for longtime U.S. allies, and with demands for official findings on charges Trump had questionable connections to Russia and President Vladimir Putin. But the FBI reportedly had found no evidence. Putin himself denied preferring the Republican, though he welcomed his statements that U.S.-Russian relations should be improved and called Trump's, quote, extravagant behavior, quote, a method to get through to people's hearts. The rising cost of Obamacare and Trump's vulgar comments and alleged behavior towards women also were key factors in the final days of campaign 2016. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. The state of emergency declared by Ethiopia's prime minister on October 9th brought no sudden end to year-long anti-government protests that saw at least 500 killed, many of them on a single day earlier in the month. The violence has roots going back 120 years to the suppression of people in the Oromo region, at least a third of the nation's population, despite their key aid to Abyssinian Emperor Menelik II in turning back an invading Italian army at the Battle of Adwa to create the modern Ethiopian state. How that history has led to the current confrontation and what might be done to resolve it are the subjects of a prescient analysis in the new fall issue of World Policy Journal, Cover theme, History's Ghosts. Headlined, Ethiopia's Original Sin, the Oromo Tragedy, the article was written by Hassan Hussein, Assistant Professor of History at St. Mary's University in Minnesota, and Mohamed Adimo, founding editor of the Oromo website, opride.com, with whom I spoke recently for this podcast. Mohamed Adimo, welcome to World Policy On Air. Thank you for having me, David. 
Let's go back before the Battle of Adwa, and what you note were the many ways Menelik II was just as bad as the Italians in his colonial-style consolidation of power, most notably and bloodily against the Oromo in 1887. Yes, absolutely. Menelik's invasion of the Oromo country, generally the independent nations in southern Ethiopia, you know, the Walaita, the Sidama, the Kafa, and others, whom that we did not have the space to mention in that piece, was just as bloody and as, uh, you know, bad as the Italian or the European uh, conquest of the Africa. But to speak directly to the battle in 1887, it is called uh, Anole. It took place in the southeastern part of Ethiopia in an area called the RC. Uh, the RC fought Menelik uh, for 10 years between 1882 and 1892, according to University of uh, Toronto historian Abbas Hajiganamo. And uh, the the, the, that fought sort of uh, took a decisive turn uh, when Ras Darge, Menelik's main man uh, overseeing the fight with the RC, called a meeting at this place called Anole uh, in 1887 in the uh, Oromo, who value peace, reconciliation, and have elaborate customs of conflict resolution came expecting that this will be, you know, a conflict resolution event. And uh, when they got there, uh, the attendees were led through a narrow path where the genitals of the men were hacked off and uh, the breasts were cut off from uh, Oromo women uh, who were at that day. And... Uh, you know, that marked a dark uh, part of uh, Ethiopia's history and also a turning point in the final conquest of the Oromo people in Ethiopia. And, uh, you know, you talk to average uh, Ethiopians who are Oromo, particularly the RC Oromo today, uh, no other event in the history of that country will get people worked up like that event. And uh, the story of what happened on that battle is pulled down to generations, you know, through songs and through oral traditions. And uh, it is very much uh, a big part of uh, the challenge that we face as a country, I think, moving forward, because this bloody battle and the many battles before it uh, were never properly acknowledged in Ethiopia's uh, official historiography. Ironically, you note the later battle against the Italians at Agua was actually triggered by one of many self-protective deals Menelik made with European powers. Talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, during the scramble for Africa, when the Europeans uh, decided to divide up uh, the continent of Africa, Menelik uh, made a pitch that, you know, Ethiopia for uh, centuries before that remained an island of Christianity in the Sea of Pagans, and the Pagans being the Oromos and other people uh, in the south. And he also made his uh, ambitions clear that he wanted to colonize all of Oromo country, in the, even as far as Khartoum, according to some literature. And uh, uh, as part of that, and you know, he also was relying on Europeans to buy uh, guns and modern uh, warfare using the resources that he just uh, 
uh, amassed from the conquered uh, people of the south. So this particular uh, treaty that you refer to is called the Uchale Treaty of Friendship and Peace, and I believe it took uh, place in 1889. And uh, one of the interesting things that happened at that uh, treaty was that the uh, Italians wrote two versions of uh, the agreement. One is in Amharic, the official language of Ethiopia still, and even then uh, during Menelik, the Amharic. And they talked about friendship, comedy, and uh, all about peace between King Menelik on the one hand and the Italians on the other hand, two sovereign countries signing a deal. Basically, don't touch my, my, my territory. I will not stand uh, before your colonial adventures, you know, down in Somalia and in, in other parts of East Africa at the time. And the, the irony of it, of course, is that the Italian version of that document talked completely about something different. And uh, it made uh, Ethiopia essentially a protectorate uh, under Italy, and put Ethiopia under Italy's sphere of influence. Uh, and the controversy that really uh, was generated when the Ethiopians, uh, Menelik's people, found out that this was uh, uh, a treachery and uh, the forgery that the Ethiopians, uh, the Italians used. I think that in some ways was a trigger uh, in the, the fact that they couldn't agree on the exact terms of that treaty is what really led to the Battle of Adwa, in which, of course, the Ethiopians uh, trashed Middle East forces and uh, uh, prevented, in some ways, Ethiopia's colonization in, in as much or as it has happened in much of Africa. After what Menelik had done to the Oromo earlier, how did he get them to fight with him, and what was their special role in the Battle of Adwa? That's a great question. I think, uh, at least in, the, in this feudal imperial sense uh, we are speaking, the subjugated masses uh, in the conquered lands are essentially in the service of the emperor. Not only that you harvest the land and uh, uh, provide all the resources and you pay taxes, you pay uh, other, other things, you serve the, the, the emperor. And the emperor obviously had access to firearms and uh, he had monopoly of arms. Uh, and he played, as we discussed, Europeans against each other, you know, telling the Brits uh, uh, that if they don't intervene, uh, he would let them have uh, parts of Sudan and what have you. I think, you know, when you are in the service of an emperor in the whole country or in the service of the emperor, uh, there's no question that uh, he rallied the subject uh, people of the South, including the Oromo, who were really superior in, in, in their uh, fight and in their use of horse, and uh, they knew uh, how to engage in uh, guerrilla warfare because they've just fought and stood in front of minimum expansion for many years. So he rallied the subject uh, people who were at that point uh, in the service of the emperor and his empire. Talk about what happened afterwards that led the Oromo to see Adwa differently than others inside Ethiopia and elsewhere in Africa. At least one Oromo hero was practically written out of history. 
Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, the name of uh, this uh, Romo hero is Fitorari Gabayo Gora. Uh, in, in many Ethiopian history books, uh, you don't even hear his uh, Oromo last name. All you hear is Fitorari Gabayo. He died at the Battle of Adwa, and he's the uh, the person uh, that rallied the Oromo, because one of the things I think Midalik and uh, uh, his successors did in subjugating the Oromo is they found uh, within the Oromo people that they gave ceremonial uh, powers to empower the few that they can use to subjugate the others. You know, they don't speak the same language, so you need someone who speaks the language of the masses. So... Uh, Gabayo was completely erased in similar ways that the contribution of the Oromo was erased, not just from the Battle of Adwa, but in the uh, formation of Ethiopia uh, itself. Now, the Battle of Adwa was a unique feat. You know, the Ethiopians were not matched uh, at all with the Italians uh, in, in terms of their firepower but they were able to defeat the Italians. But what happened afterward uh, in, in the role of that battle, in Menelik's uh, ability to use the subject people of the South to defeat the Italians meant that he, he faced no external threat. So it paved the way for Menelik's fo uh, focus in some ways to the South and continue to expand uh, his, his empire. And, uh, you know, the South uh, is resource-rich, both in terms of wealth, in terms of land, in terms of human resources, and he needed all this uh, as part of his capitalist expansion, but also to continue to buy guns uh, from the Europeans. So in some ways, uh, as I said earlier, the Battle of Adwa, meant that Ethiopia uh, avoided colonization. But from the Oromo perspective, from the perspective of other people in the South, uh, it meant that uh, Menelik had free reign and no threat from outside uh, to continue to subjugate them and bring them under his sphere of influence. And uh, uh, again, you know, Adwa would not have been possible without the contribution of the Oromo and other people in the South, but their contributions and their blood, you know, as Gabriel Yehud out there, their sweat, it went unrecorded uh, in the history of that country. In the, in the contemporary Ethiopian history, it, it plays such a role uh, because for some Ethiopians, Menelik is a, a statesman, and he's credited for building uh, the modern Ethiopian state. There are statues for him, but there are no statues for people like Fertorari Gabayo, uh, who paid the ultimate sacrifice defending this country from the uh, Italian invasion. And no mention whatsoever of uh, of just how important the contribution of the subject people is, more importantly, what the uh, defeat of the Italians may, meant for the people and uh, what Menelik's conquest of the people in the South, the killings, meant for the conquered people of uh, the South. And the, the entire Oromo population subsequently suffered as well under Menelik. I mean, it was quite brutal. It really was, and I think uh, uh, history, historians have uh, 
uh, made estimates that between 1860s and 1900 alone, uh, the Oromo population was halved uh, primarily by the conquest. And as I mentioned, the RC fought for 10 years. The Tulama fought for many, many years. Uh, both RC and the Tulama are Oromo tribes. And there were uh, other battles in the Afran Kalno area called Chalanko, very bloody. Uh, through this, and also there was a famine that took place uh, at the time, and people were displaced by the war. Uh, and in the, uh, the estimate the historians make uh, during this time is about 5 million almost were killed uh, uh, between the, the conquest and the war, and also the famine that ravaged the country. So it was, it was bloody, brutal, uh, largely unacknowledged. In part, you write, the Oromo, despite their still significant numbers, were marginalized by a developing ideal of, quote, Ethiopian exceptionalism. Define that and what it meant in practice. Ethiopian exceptionalism is this idea that when you think of Ethiopia, uh, you think of the Amhara. Menelik was uh, an Amhara king. Amhara is the... uh, Abyssinian king, uh, I mean, the dominant Abyssinian ethnic group uh, in Ethiopia that traced their ancestry uh, to King Solomon of uh, Israel. And, uh, you know, you think of Ethiopian food, uh, everything that you see in the diaspora or in the country, and everything that gets passed on as Ethiopian culture at international events, at the Olympics and anywhere you go, is really an Amhara uh, manifestation in the language of the country, despite the fact that the Amharas are only about 20% of the country, the language, Amharic um, language is imposed on all other people of the country. So Ethiopian exceptionalism is built around uh, making everything Ethiopian and Amhara. Uh, and uh, that also means that the erasure uh, and the exclusion of the Oromo and other uh, ethnic groups in the, in, in the country. So Ethiopian exceptionalism uh, uh, continues, uh, continues uh, till today where uh, the Oromo, for example, despite being numerical majority, uh, are still relegated to the periphery, in the center periphery contention, uh, the center being uh, the power uh, elites in Addis Ababa in the periphery, the people who have, uh, have been systematically marginalized, continues to dominate the debate about the future of Ethiopia. And I think uh, the protests that we've seen in the past year is a manifestation of uh, essentially that systemic marginalization that has been going on for uh, over a century now. Discrimination against the Oromo persists even among growing communities of Ethiopians abroad, you write, even in Washington, D.C., now home to the largest of those communities outside Africa, including yourself. And the key is a concept called Habesha, which confounds usual perceptions of black and white. Explain its origin and its current importance. 
the term Abasha, the origin of it, uh, uh, some people, uh, it's just not clear, but some historians suggest that it is, it has it is roots in the Arabic language where uh, during the expansion of the Abyssinian Empire, which reached parts of Yemen, uh, the Yemenis or people in, in that part of Arabia called uh, the Abyssinians Habash. And uh, it, 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 uh, it is origins goes back there. But what it means uh, for Ethiopians or what it, it came to mean uh, in contemporary Ethiopian history is that uh, Habasha is basically a, a term for the Amhara, the dominant rulers of Ethiopia, and the Tigray, the current rulers of Ethiopia in the Tigrayan language speaking people who also live in parts of Eritrea. So the Habasha uh, uh, moniker essentially excludes really uh, 90% of uh, the country, if you feel, if you will, and much of the South. Uh, but it is used uh, in the diaspora, for example, as a way to say that uh, the Habasha people are different from both blacks and whites. And uh, this goes back to Menelik in, in, uh, in one way or another, because Menelik uh, was on the record, Haile uh, Selassie, the king after Menelik, uh, was uh, or the last king of Ethiopia was also on the record saying that they did not consider themselves black and they considered themselves uh, uh, Caucasian in the, in the Caucasian in the, in the case of uh, Menelik. So the term Abasha in the diaspora is used in the sense that the Ethiopians uh, like to or the people who identify as Abasha like to think of themselves as different from the African Americans and other African immigrants in the diaspora, and they uh, trace, as I said earlier, their origins back to King Solomon. So they, it's almost a separate uh, racial category in the way it is used in the diaspora. The way it is used uh, to discriminate uh, against the Oromo in others, it's, it's almost like a blanket reference that is often uh, used to avoid talking about the difficult history of Ethiopia, which we refer to in the piece as contested terrain. Everything about Ethiopian history is contested because these uh, historical wrongs were never acknowledged. So you use the Habasha to avoid talking about that. And then you say we are all Habasha. Uh, and what we are saying is we're not Habasha. And I live in Washington, D.C., and I, I go to grocery stores to buy, you know, spices and, and food from home, and I you know, the taxis and the, the parking garages are all uh, 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 run by Ethiopians in the Washington area, if you've ever been here. And they ask you, are you Habasha? And uh, sometimes you just want to say no. And that offends them because uh, they they become uncomfortable and they don't want to talk about it, but they look at you as if uh, you're not seeking community with them. And sometimes uh, you just say yes and you want to go about your day because, you know, you run into a 70-year-old uh, person who's from 
you know, Ethiopia, and uh, they don't necessarily understand the nuances, and they are uneducated, and they are reaching out to you because you look like them, and they want to belong, and they want to relate, and uh, sometimes, you know, they yearn for that because they don't necessarily connect with the, with the American way of life, way of being in the way the younger generation does. So in those instances, you just want to say yes and uh, have them a piece, uh, give them a peace of mind so that they don't get uncomfortable uh, by, by this. And, you know, also these interactions are often very brief in, in that you can't sit down and have conversations about history and the origins of the term and the way it is used. So it's a very delicate dance and uh, you look at every specific uh, case uh, and re- try to respond accordingly. Uh, but it's always difficult. Talk about the shift of power in Ethiopia in 1991 uh, from the Amharic to the Tigray, who the new rulers are, and what it did and didn't mean for the Oromo. Uh, so the Amhara uh, dominated Ethiopia's uh, power uh, in the economy from the time of long before Menelik until uh, the end of the Darg regime, the communist regime in 1991. And the demise of the communist regime was brought about uh, through a coalition of uh, nationalist parties, and one of them being the Tigray People's Liberation Front, uh, the power the people who are in power right now, the, the kingmakers in Ethiopia today, if you will. In the second group that was fighting against the Darg regime was the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, which ultimately became Eritrea and declared their independence. And the other group, the third and probably most important group, was the Oromo Liberation Front. Uh, which represented the, the Oromo people uh, in the fight against uh, the regime of Mangistra Helamarim uh, or the Derg. So in 1991, uh, these three forces and others came together uh, in, with the help of Americans and others. They drafted a transitional charter uh, for the future of Ethiopia. And uh, as part of that, Eritrea declared it is independence. And uh, the referendum was held in 1993, I believe. Uh, but an election, when the election was held, the Tigrayan People Liberation Front, who had uh, superior strength in terms of military, but also had the backing of uh, Western powers, uh, systematically built satellite organizations that did not represent uh, the Oromo uh, and others in the ways that the Oromo liberation and, and others uh, representing various ethnic groups in the country represented the people. And so the Oromo liberation front withdrew essentially uh, facilitating, uh, from, withdrew from the election essentially facilitating the stage for the Tigray People's Liberation Front to monopolize power and uh, build uh, uh, the Ethiopia that we have now, which was, you know, in theory based on an ethnic federalist formula 
which allowed the Oromo, the Amhara, the Somali, and other ethnic groups in the country to self-govern and elect their leaders. Uh, in the, the constitution of Ethiopia today, uh, has it is rooted in that charter I mentioned, which was a compromise. You have uh, different liberation fronts uh, that were fighting for independence of their piece of land. And the compromise was that instead of everyone uh, getting their piece of land, let's come up with the, with the compromise in the ethnic federalist formula was the compromise solution. But once the Oromo Liberation Front withdrew, the Eritrean Liberation Front uh, declared it is independence, the Tigrans were left in a position to really decide what they, they to do with the country. And they they refused, they wrote a beautiful uh, constitution, but they refused to implement it. And uh, the grievances have been growing in the Oromo and others. Uh, for example, the Ogaden, the Gambella, uh, the Afar, the Anyuak, many other ethnic groups have been fighting against this regime, and it is systemic abuse of power where, uh, on the one hand, they swear by this uh, very democratic constitution, but they trample over it and uh, continue to oppress the people. After years of isolated protests and ineffective guerrilla warfare against the nation's new rulers, the Oromo in November 2015 launched the ongoing campaign of civil disobedience that's led to so much bloodshed and now a state of emergency. Uh, the major precipitating cause was a government land grab, I gather. Talk about that and the government pushback that became an even greater grievance. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, this started initially in in April of 2014, actually, to go back. And uh, that was when the government in Addis Ababa unveiled what they called the Addis Ababa Master Plan. The Addis Ababa Master Plan uh, essentially meant that the surrounding Oromo or towns and villages around Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, will come under the jurisdiction of the federal government. The goal was Ethiopia is uh, uh, seen as an ideal investment destination, and the goal was to give this land uh, to foreign investors to build industrial towns, and similar to the kind of industrial complexes uh, in the South Asia, in China, and in some other places. And, uh, you know, the Oromos, uh, who are original habitants of Addis Ababa, have been pushed out of uh, the city. And this was once an Oromo uh, land, and now you go to Addis Ababa, there are no threats of uh, Oromo left. You know, there are no Oromo uh, landmarks or street names or museums, nothing that reflects the Oromo uh, in Addis Ababa. And, uh, you know, when I was a student there, uh, we would get surprised when we run into uh, people who spoke Afan Oromo. It was that foreign to the Oromo experience, linguistically and culturally. So the expansion of Addis Ababa, the contemporary expansion, meant that this cycle of uprooting the Oromo from their land and uprooting their culture will continue to the surrounding villages and, and uh, towns. And the way it is expand, uh, it was envisioned the city was supposed to expand 20 times its current size, which means that about 2 million Oromo farmers will be displaced in an area 20 times the city's current size would 
eventually become an Oromo, if you will. So this was the trigger for the protest. And the government uh, responded the only way they know, by arresting prominent Oromo leaders, activists, and killing uh, hundreds of protesters. And this enraged people. Uh, in the sense that, you know, people have been protesting for years and opposing this government, uh, but they said even uh, our continued uh, existence as people is now very much in question because you removed from your land, your livelihood, what else you have left. So the killings led to more uh, anger and also the expansion of the protesters' demands. Uh, including greater rights and the implementation of the constitution, which gives, uh, which provides for self-governance, uh, and then also people uh, wanted to elect their leaders. Uh, the government acknowledged that the grievances were legitimate and the people were not consulted. They withdrew the master plan in January of 2015. But by that time, the protesters were no longer talking about the master plan. They were talking about greater rights, about democratic rights, uh, and they were saying we are tired of being marginalized and and, uh, continuing to be part of this system which thrives on the back of uh, the Oromo people, because the Oromo occupy a very fertile land, and much of the development is taking place on this land. But the Oromos are not benefiting from the development is affecting only few people at the top and people who are connected to those who are on power. So the protesters' demand shifted, and now, uh, as you've noted in your uh, opening remarks, we're talking about more than 1,000 people have been killed in the past year. That is about 100 people every month. So... Now protesters are calling for regime change, and they're no longer calling for elections, uh, and they don't have uh, uh, hope that this regime will bring about change, and no amount of reform short of regime change will address their grievances. Uh, And the state of emergency shows that the government realizes that this is the most serious threat it has faced in it is 25 years in power. And uh, I would note that the current government in power uh, is a one-party state, essentially. Uh, and they've, been, uh, they've had five elections, uh, all of which the ruling party won uh, in, in, uh, by more than uh, uh, 90% uh, most of the time, but 100% in the past uh, election in, in May 2015. It's interesting you write, for a while some of the old Amhara leaders saw common ground with Oromo confronting the new rulers, uh, but then uh, called them an obstacle to their movement for democracy and civil rights. What was their argument and the Oromo defense? Uh, it's interesting you ask that question, because... I think uh, everything that we talked about, Adwa, uh, had to do with the Amhara ruling class and the Amhara ruling elite uh, dominating the country and uh, killing the Oromos and oppressing the Oromos. And the Amhara and the Oromo had very difficult relationships, and the government in power understands that. And uh, I think the fact that they lasted 25 years itself has a lot to do with uh, the ways they pitted these two groups against the other. Uh, 
So when they go to the Oromo, they will tell that the Amhara dominant class wants to come back to power. We allowed you to, you know, learn a new language. Uh, you can now practice in, in, in your culture. Uh, the context to that is the Oromo language was banned from use until 1991. It was only, it only became a, a written language after the transitional government. So they would go to the Oromo and tell them that the Amaras are coming back to bring back the old system, the old Abyssinian system, the, the old exclusionist Habasha system. And they will go to the Amara and tell the Amara that Oromos want to break away and form their own enclave in an independent country like Eritrea, something the Amaras have been fearful against. Now that is changing, and uh, uh, the uh, Amaras have expressed solidarity with uh, the Oromo protesters, and uh, they are saying that the Oromos who are being killed are our brothers. Uh, and the uh, Oromos are also saying that uh, the system in Ethiopia now, yes, it targets the Oromo. Yes, it has been the Oromo oppression has been there for years. But right now, no one is spared, and the government is desperately trying to cling to power by oppressing everyone and, I think, rallying everyone together is the only way to get rid of this oppressive system and build a country that everyone can live uh, equally in peace and with harmony, with respect, uh, and hopefully also uh, in, in a country where some of the historical wrongs are properly acknowledged. Well, let's uh, continue on that line. Uh, you say to disentangle Ethiopia from the current conflict and the long history behind it requires more than redistribution of power and participation in politics in the economy, but actually uh, arguing that the histories of the country's diverse peoples must be fundamentally reconceptualized. What does that mean and how would it get started? Uh, much of Ethiopia's history was written by court historians and it was written from an Amhara perspective. It doesn't include uh, much of the things that we discussed today. And uh, the perspective that I'm giving you, the Oromo perspective on Ethiopia's history, is a new thing. It's, it's a, a, a last... Uh, a, a, a reconstruction effort by Romo scholars and uh, some scholars uh, from other nations as well. In going back to uh, the uh, notes by missionaries and uh, books written by missionaries in in the early days, reconstructing much of it. And that goes not just for the Romo, but much of the country except for the Amhara, because Ethiopia is conceptualized as an Amharanized state. Uh, and the redistribution of power is not enough unless you acknowledge the historical wrongs and uh, have uh, some of these things re reimagined. For example, if you're teaching uh, young children in Ethiopia that the Oromo came from overseas and they are migrants and they're not indigenous to the land, that is very offensive, and that is not the best way uh, you can build a country. It doesn't matter how many ministers uh, are Oromo. Uh, so I think what we are getting at there is to reimagine re the, the idea of Ethiopia, an, an Ethiopia where each and every ethnic group in the country can see themselves in, both in the history, in its manifestation, uh, which includes what is 
Ethiopia's culture. We have to think about whose culture uh, is worthy of being praised as Ethiopian culture, whose traditional clothing, whose uh, uh, coffee ceremonies are a national coffee ceremony. What is Ethiopia? Who is Ethiopian? These questions have to be answered in, in a way that uh, there is some kind of consensus and enough consultation with people and uh, uh, really critically looking at Ethiopia's history. In uh, some of this work has been done in the past uh, 20 years because of the ethnic federalist structure. Uh, but it needs much deeper engagement and I think that's the only way for the country to move forward because you have the statue of Menelik in the center of Addis Ababa on a land that is very sacred and very important to the Oromo. And they pass by it and they look, uh, they see a genocider uh, there. And what do you do with symbols like that? And which symbols are national symbols? Uh, so it's, it's uh, it is uh, an exercise in really rethinking and acknowledging and validating people's histories and people's stories. Uh, and that's the only way I think we can truly move forward as a country. Otherwise, one ethnic group will come to power and they will just repeat the same mistakes, which is uh, what has been happening in the past uh, where, you know, the Amharas, uh, dominated power, the Tigrans came, they promised to give us democracy, but they repeated the same things because uh, the kind of uh, uh, discussions that should take place to heal these historical wrongs uh, did not take place and there were no uh, truths in, in the Reconciliation Commission, uh, there is no proper acknowledgement of uh, historical wrongs. So I think we need to uh, engage in those kinds of exercises as happened in, uh, in many places, in post-apartheid South Africa, in, in Rwanda, in many places where uh, traumatic historical events took place. Mohamed Adimo, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Mohamed Adimo is founding editor of the Washington-based Aromo website, opride.com, with Hassan Hussein, assistant professor of history at St. Mary's University in Minnesota. He wrote the article headlined, Ethiopia's Original Sin, the Aromo Tragedy, for the new fall issue of World Policy Journal, cover theme history's ghosts. After we spoke, Continuing protests forced Ethiopia's prime minister to dismantle his government and form a new one, albeit through a major reshuffle of existing cabinet ministers, quickly approved by the House of People's Representatives, entirely controlled by his ruling party and its allies. Also featured in the new WPJ Fall issue, History's Ghosts, you'll find articles on what lessons from history keep being forgotten, on silencing the echoes of Tiananmen, and on the painful legacy of Canada's residential Indian schools. And listen next week when our podcast will consider foreign policy fallout from the U.S. presidential election. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>